Welcome to Rising Tide, a podcast for career-driven women to find inspiration, find courage, and find their voice. I am so excited to be back and bringing you new episodes. This one is a great way to kick us off. On this episode, I'm joined by Jennifer Chapman, founder of Just Commit Coaching. And I remember having one of those moments in your car where you like break down and you're like, what in the world? Like what I get myself into? It's, it's that doubt moment. Like, can I, can I really do this? Jennifer is truly special. And this episode, we really break it up. There's three key parts. We talk about her childhood. There was an incredibly major life event that rocked her world and changed it forever. Part two, we get into what seems like normal life now and her career in sales and her success in sales. And then part three, again, another major life event that completely changes everything that she knew to be true. What I love and admire as I listen to her story is Jennifer shows tremendous strength. She shows the power of what happens when we don't have control of what happens to us, but we can control how we react. She is just so strong. Her story will leave you so touched and inspired. And I can't wait for you to get to know her better. Enjoy. Welcome to Rising Tide, Jennifer. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me today, Margaret. Oh, I'm so excited. I got to give you massive props because you go into a special category for me of women who raised their hand and asked about being on the podcast, which is rare. And my hope is that changes, but you, you get to be in a special category of women that I automatically think are awesome because you're advocating for yourself and you raised your hand and wanted to come on and share your story. <laughs> well, that means a whole lot. I guess I didn't realize that not as many women do that when I think that they definitely should, because there's just so many women out there with stories of empowerment and people need to hear them. I couldn't agree more. Well, and so, yeah, so you are unfortunately currently in rare company, but hopefully we are going to continue changing that over time. I'm game for it. Nice. Well, I think what's really, really incredible is that I actually have gotten to see you speak before. And I got to hear your story when I went to a Linking Indie Women event. And it was unbelievably powerful. And I just, there's there's just so many dimensions to you. And so I was so excited for you. I was so excited you reached out because I probably should have done it before you did. But the, to, to actually get to talk about it because there's so many different aspects. So I what I was thinking for today is we're going to go way, way, way back. It's something that happened really young when you were 11. So maybe if you will start us there and what was kind of the big thing that changed everything when you were 11? Yeah. So by all definition, I had the ideal childhood, you know, amazing parents, little brother, but just like really big supportive, loving family. Grew up in Indianapolis and danced my little way up to 
you know, till the age of 10, 11. And then two weeks before starting sixth grade for me at a family cookout after dinner, my mom became ill after dinner. Nobody really knew what was going on or how severe, but she ended up passing out at the house and we obviously did what we needed to do, you know, call 911 and we all kind of just, my family gathered around. They kind of moved my brother and I into separate rooms. So we didn't have to see that piece of it, but I just know things were happening quickly. She got into the ambulance. They took her to the hospital. Um, we went to stay with my grandparents that was on a Saturday night. And by Monday morning at 6am, my dad showed up at my grandparents' house to tell my brother and I that she didn't make it. And to this day, over 27 years later, do we know the real definition of why? Not really. That kind of makes it one of the challenging pieces, right? I mean, it, she already passed very suddenly and tragically, but to not know why aside from a potential allergic reaction to something she ate and ultimately her throat swelled shut. And that was, that was it. There was no coming back from that. Oh my gosh. I can't, can't even imagine at such a young age and to have that happen so suddenly. So did, were you ever able to go see her or were you at your grandparents the whole weekend? I was at my grandparents the whole weekend. And I think even now, so I'm okay with that. I don't think I would have wanted that last image yeah. of her being hooked up to all the machines and the tubes and, and all of that, that would have been probably terrifying for a little kid. Mm -hmm. So you know, yeah, my, my kind of lasting memory was still at our house, their family. And, and I'm, I'm okay with that. Right. Gosh. So what is life like after, because I think, you know, not everyone kind of loses a parent, especially that young and certainly not that fast. So will you tell us a little bit about like, what came after? Because that's an incredibly intense thing to try to even comprehend at 11. You're getting ready to go into a new school. Like what happens next for you? Yeah, it was definitely what a wild roller coaster ride it was for the, that next probably year, I would say. I mean, you know, I went into middle school I stayed with my aunt for a while and my cousin, and that was my mom's sister. And my cousin was only four months younger than me. So we were super close mm. um, before that. So it just was a really nice, comfortable way for me to kind of cope for the first few months. My brother stayed with my dad. And then we shortly after that moved out of that house just to kind of start fresh, um, you know, and just kind of readjust. And I think my dad with two little kids did the best he could with, with what he knew to do, you know, we'd go visit her very often. And for a kid, that's, that's really hard to do because I think I felt then that I was trying to like, you know, love and support my dad. I mean, you don't, not a lot of kids see their dad cry as often as, as I did. And so I was trying to stay strong for him and I would only do it, you know, in my room or, or with my aunt or, and that's just me being aware of that now, but Luckily for me, I, I picked up a tennis racket that she had bought me for Christmas six months earlier and picked it up and was blessed with just the gift of play. And mm -hmm. looking back now, I can say what therapy that was for me. Cause I, I played for the next seven years, year round through middle school, high school, 
you know, tournaments traveling. So that was definitely that kept me, you know, occupied in a really solid, powerful way. Kind of kept my head down and focused, you know what I mean? Because you can just, <laughs> you can go a lot of different ways and, and probably easily spiral if you don't have that right, let alone support system, but just direction, guided direction on, on how to cope. And I think I did a pretty good job of it. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's really interesting because that would be, really helpful to have something to like channel energy into in some ways have a, a constant distraction. So was it, I mean, you know, having channeled so much of your energy into tennis for seven years, was it hard to let it go? Did you just, was that a conscious thing of like, I want to have a different experience in college? Like what was the decision behind not pursuing that for school or for college, I guess I should say. Yeah, it was a hard choice. And I, I did get a couple of offers to go play. Um, but that would have been the only reason to go like those schools themselves didn't really jump out at me as somewhere I wanted to be. I just definitely took a leap of faith and trusted that, you know, I was making, making the right choice and to kind of hang up my, my racket, if you will. And yeah, kind of press on and pursue just being a, you know, a great, a great student, but also, you know, experiencing college life at its best. And I did a good job. <laughs> Right. Well, yeah, exactly. And like going and exploring, it sounds like giving yourself time to figure out what would be the right path for you. And then, so ended up finding marketing and then how did you end up in sales? Yeah. Right. Like my idea of sales when I was pursuing, you know, going into my junior and senior year, it was like, you know, they're teaching you like door to door sales. They're teaching you picking up the phone and cold calling like all. And I thought, that is absolutely, I have no desire to do that. Thank you. But no, and really, you know, then they don't, they didn't have the internships then as they do now, or I would have taken advantage of that. Right. Like I, I worked through college. So I, I worked at Olive Garden for all you OG fans out there. And it was like really (laughs) good customer experience, right? It was good experience to, to work with customers all day, every day. The money was pretty good in college. So I always had cash on hand and it definitely made me focus even more so on grades because I was working 30 hours a week. But anyways, it wasn't until after I graduated, did I know through a friend of a friend whose dad worked at this huge beer and wine distributor in Indianapolis. I had always heard about this company, but you know, at the sales, at the job fairs, that table was always crowded with people because you see beer and wine everywhere. And I'm like, I'm not even gonna have a chance. I mean, they're getting hundreds, hundreds of applications. But literally, a couple months after I graduated, a friend of a friend's dad worked there. He took my resume, and within a couple of weeks, I was hired. Oh my gosh, that's amazing! That's really amazing. Okay, so tell us about this sales role because they, I like, it doesn't sound like you were going door to door, and it doesn't sound like you were making necessarily a hundred cold calls a day. So what, what was that first sales job like? Thank goodness the avenue I chose, it was an established territory already. It's not like, so my first two years out, I was in wine sales off-premise and off-premise just means grocery stores or liquor stores. And I had a grocery store route in like four towns over on the west side of Indianapolis. And so you're already going in. They already obviously have an established section of beer and wine go back then it was like, you're still taking orders. I mean, you're still seeing, you know, your products on the shelf, what's selling, what's not ordering. And then going back the next day and you would go in that back room of that Kroger, 
pull the palate out of your order and pack it out as we call it, like throw the wine on the shelf. So, and then your, your job was to then upsell the store manager on like trying to get a new, new wine brand in there or to sell more of one that's already in there that's doing well based on all the things, pricing, promotion, you know, and so we were a big Gallo wholesaler, which is a huge wine company. So I did that for two years in a couple different territories and just learned a lot, you know, as, as, as far as having conversations with store managers and just selling and promoting and hitting goals every month. And, you know, for me, then it was, they were throwing out all the, all the wine, you know, all the incentives for winning trips or winning extra cash, like loved it. Like, yeah, tell me more about this. So that's what I did the first couple of years. And then I transitioned. Got it. Okay. So super fun. Cause you were there for eight years. Yes. So yeah. So you, I mean, really liked it. And then it looks like I held multiple positions while you were there and took on different types of roles. So how did you know that this was something that like spoke to you and that you like, you loved it and you wanted to keep doing it. And like, clearly, you know, you were with this company for eight years. You know, I think the thing that I realized because I did two years with wine and then I did almost five years selling beer on mm-hmm. premise, which is to bars and restaurants, which I, which I loved so much. And a lot of that was because, you know, there a lot of them were independently owned and operated. So they're making their own buying decisions, right? Whereas like Kroger and Walmart, it's pretty much on a corporate level. So you kind of got to go by their book, if you will. But really what I found selling beer was just building that relationship with those bar and restaurant owners and understanding that I'm establishing my trust with them and my knowledge of, of what I know and, and making what's the best decision that I think is going to be for them. And that, that's true for all sales looking back, but you know, they've got to trust me before they're going to trust anything that I'm going to sell them. So right. that was probably the biggest learning lesson I had. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and how fun to get to work with I mean, work with small business owners and like people who like, this was their livelihood. That's a totally different dynamic than working for someone that's running a store for a major corporation. Very cool. So you kind of made a big jump then because you were like, to your point, you were in the beverage industry for 10 years, loved it. And then you moved to Cintas and kind of big, I mean, I guess still technically in the hospitality arena, but big change. What prompted the the move out of the beverage industry and shifting to Cintas? Huge, huge change and leap of faith for me. And it was because, so I met my husband early on at the distributor we were at. He was, I was one of those girls that dated my manager. Um, I don't know if I recommend that, <laughs> but yeah. Thank you. Thanks. For it worked out. Yeah. Hang on though. I feel like we need to stay there for a minute. So you, you ended up marrying a former boss. Yes. I'm one of those girls. Oh my gosh. Oh my God. Okay. So that had to have been so, and then when was, was this when you were at, uh, which, which company were you at? Monarch beverage. Okay. Oh my gosh. So he was like my first manager back in like my first job there, like back in 05, 06. And he then got promoted to run the entire division, not just the region that we were in. So he wasn't ready to commit to the relationship right then, to be honest. And that was the reason I transitioned from wine to go to the beer division. I like no longer wanted to be in his space. Yeah. And we just took that time away for like, 
it was probably another two years. And then we, we finally, we reconnected and, um, we knew right away then. And I think we did, we, I know we just needed that time that to, to grow and mature and figure out our own lives, you know, and then mm-hmm. recommitted a couple years later and we're, we're engaged within five months and married a year later, um, back in 09. And he's, so he's been in the industry ever since he's been in the industry since he graduated school. And I think for me, because I was in that industry 10 years, he just flourished. I mean, he just was climbing that ladder at a good clip, you know, and I wasn't, I just felt like I was keeping it steady. Even though I went to a couple different companies, just taking positions that were, you know, better than the next, but really just was not growing the way I wanted to. And I really just wanted something for myself. I wanted to be proud of myself. I didn't want to have to rely on him for, for all the things I wanted. I wanted to do something for myself. So I was recruited on LinkedIn for this company called CentOS, and I hadn't really heard of it before, but went through the process of working with the recruiter, met the management and the leadership team there. And I remember sitting in that office on my last interview with the, the VP of the region. And, and he was like, well, we're, we're, we're ready for you. Like, where's your head at? Where are you at with this? Cause we're ready. And I just thought, even then, I don't want to say yes to you and then fail. Like, this is a huge leap of faith. This is going from sales that were, there were just established territories, established accounts. You're just growing the brand, growing volume where you're now asking me to go to new business sales, which is literally door to door, honestly, like anything, anything is a potential. Every door is an opportunity. Like that sounds terrifying. So I haven't forbid, I say yes to you. You guys are counting on me. And I literally told him like, I do not want to come to you and fail. And he was just like, you won't trust us. Like you can do this. And my husband was not supportive at the time. I will tell you, he was like, quit going from job to job. Like, and my recruiter was like, I'll never forget it. She's like, he can sleep on the couch for a week. You're not going job to job. Like get over him. This is for you. You've stayed in the industry 10 years, proving yourself, you know, get your mind right and do this. And I thought she could have offended the wrong person, but I was just a huge fan of her. And she was just one of the reasons why I just trusted her and trusted who I had met and ultimately got to trust myself. And I, I took the leap and I'm so glad I did. Oh my gosh. That sounds, I mean, <laughs> that was a very, you're right. That was a very bold move. Cause it was, it wasn't just leaving an industry that you knew it was completely changing mm-hmm. a sales motion, which going from working with an existing territory and, you know, customers to new business, like that's a totally different beast. Oh my gosh. You know, I had a question for you. I wanted to come back to you. Something you said when you were talking about like, you know, seeing your husband like continuing to flourish and and, like kind of growing in his career and you having aspirations that were not being met. What were those aspirations? And then what, what, if anything, was there a reason like they, that you just weren't, it wasn't happening there and you needed to get out from that industry to be able to be successful or at the level you wanted to be successful at? Yeah. Great question. And I feel like looking back, I was, when I left Monarch, which I was there for eight years, then went to a brand new corporate distributor of wine and spirits and loved my leader there. Uh And then six months after I was there, I went on vacation and came back and he was gone. And that was a, a red flag to me because I just thought he was remarkable And there had to have been a prompt reason where he left so abruptly. And, you know, this new leader came in, which this was however many years ago. And this guy is still um, 
crushing it in the industry as well. I know that, but he just, he was, he had a whole different leadership style. And I feel like we noticed that with it within our team, you know, uh, he just led differently and it just, it didn't vibe with me. And, and I, I was thankfully recruited from there to go to a supplier that sold hard cider at the time when that was on fire, if that tells <laughs> yeah. you anything. but, um, and I thought, okay, here's another opportunity to take a little step up. I'm not going to cover the whole state of Indiana, not just the city of Indianapolis. Okay. And then, you know, after a year there, my manager saying, Hey, we're going to expand your, your position, your, your region, you know, we're going to provide you this different title. And then within like 60 days of kind of having that interview and kind of looking forward to the change, it, it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And I thought, again, another red flag, like, I thought this was a done deal and it wasn't. And that's timing is everything. I, I truly wholeheartedly believe that. And that's when this recruiter reached out to me again on LinkedIn and said, are you ready to, to take this leap and, and get this big girl job? And I thought, yes, let's do it. So there were reasons there were, there yeah. were things. Looking back. Yeah. Well, it's so, I mean, it's so interesting, isn't it? Cause I think there's, there's something to be said there for, kind of being in tune with what's happening in the environment around you and paying attention to that. And then also just, you know, as difficult as it is, like sometimes our managers, they play a big role. And, you know, I think to your point, like people don't typically leave companies, they leave bosses. And that sounds like that was very much the case. And then, you know, they also play a really big role in an opportunity and being able to advance forward. So thank you for sharing that. Cause that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. So you obviously got past the fear, got past even having the person who, you know, probably whose opinion you hold nearest and dearest telling you like, don't do it. So like, tell us about those early days at CentOS. Like I can only imagine headspace wise, like what that transition must've been like, what was that like going and starting there? Well, I remember it's about a 13 week kind of sales rep and training program, if you will, where you, you get time to kind of learn the process, you know, learn their sales process, learn how everything works day to day, week to week, get your feet wet in working with other reps on your team on how they sell, what, you know, the the tips and tricks. And, and I remember like in that 13 week window, like week eight or nine, having one of those moments in your car where you like break down and you're like, what in the world? Like, what I get myself into. It's, it's that doubt moment. Like, Mm. can I, can I really do this? Can I sustain this, this, um, activity that they ask for every week? And can I, more importantly than that, can I get some yeses here? Can I start to see how this truly works? I want to feel this. And sure enough, a month later, I'm out in good old Shelbyville, which is kind of a, a, kind of more of a rural city, but it's, it's growing. And knocked on a door of like one of the biggest looking manufacturing plants out there. Had no idea what I was doing, right? I, it's one of those, you're in a vestibule and there's a phone here and there's a list of names. And I'm like, I have no idea who to call on. I'm just going to pick a name. Lucky, it was meant to be that I picked the right name that day. And he answered and he's like, yeah, let's meet out in the lobby. We sat and BS for 45 minutes about life. Mm. The last 10 minutes were business. And I just said, hey, I... I sell, you know, I'm, I'm here to help create a, a better, you know, floor mat program for you, restroom supplies, cleaning chemicals, anything that's maybe 
not working for you right now that you can improve? And he was like, yeah, actually we could. And he, long story short, he sent me an email the next day with everything that they were buying and from where two, three months later through lots of meetings with him and trials of different products and all the things he said yes and signed with us. And I don't know if it still is, but even when I left CentOS two years ago, it was still the biggest facility service account at our location on the east side of Indianapolis. So he was my, my biggest win, my biggest success story, I, no matter, it just incorporates. And that really catapulted me into that first year of sales at CentOS. That's amazing. Well, and I just, I love, again, another another form of bravery, putting yourself out there, just going for it. And in this case, like it, it really worked out. Let me ask you this, because having been in sales, having worked with salespeople, imposterism can be, and this is not unique to sales, but I think because of kind of that recurring quota and that number, it can be a really, that, that intense sensation of like being an imposter and like you landed this really big deal how were you able to kind of continue to find success? Because I mean, you came out swinging, like it's like you hit a grand slam in your rookie season in the first game, right? It's like, that's kind of what I'm thinking of analogy wise, but how did you ensure that you kind of kept your head in a healthy place so that you could continue performing and taking full credit and ownership of the fact that you had just done this amazing thing because you're awesome versus like, luck, right? Like how did you, how did you navigate kind of after like this really big win? I think for me, it goes back to the sales manager I had and Mm -hmm. how much he just created that like safe, supportive, but yet, um, that environment that just makes you want to work not only for yourself, but for him, or I can say not only for him, but for me. Um, and I think that it did help to obviously land that like first quarter of, of the fiscal year. But I think the key looking back is to not focus on the number every week, Mm. but if you just focus on what they teach and train you, right? Like if you just focus on, okay, well, if I, if I do this many calls a week, if I stop in this many places, set this many appointments, which is a lot to think about, but if you do that on a consistent basis, things are going to happen. And then the numbers will come, those results will come. So I just kind of trusted that, you know, what I was doing and I, I, a strength of mine is building those relationships quickly that, you know, at least people were willing to sit down and being open enough to talk and hear me out. And I just trusted in our process and really tried hard not to just focus on the number, because if you do that, you will easily burn yourself out. Right. Right. Well, I think so great that like trusting the process, focusing on what was within your control and then knowing your strengths and like where your talents lie. That mm-hmm. that makes a lot of sense. Okay. So, I mean, you were an unbelievably successful in your role here, doing a really great job. And then there's something kind of major that happens in your time at CentOS. So maybe like if we can, like we'll kind of fast forward there a little bit of like, you know, life's, life's moving along. Things are going really great. And then 34 hits. Yeah, so 34 was the most pivotal year um, in my life thus far. And and here's why. That May 31st mark, I I, I hear I, I hit President's Club my first year at CentOS. And I I don't even I, I tell people I don't even think I knew the 
the breadth of what that meant and how huge it truly was until even looking back now, I, I know how, how big it is to, and how hard it is to do that, but how rewarding it is to do that. Mm-hmm. So I'm already trying to wrap my head around, yeah, I really did just have this like killer year. And now my, even my husband can see like, oh, his goal is to be a stay at home dad with no kids and a dog, which <laughs> will never happen. But that was his vision. And then I turned like two days later, turned 34 and have this epiphany in my backyard as I'm sitting there thinking, my mom was 34 when she passed, you know, there's always a couple of big years, you know, some years are harder than others, regardless of how many years go by. But this obviously hit me like a ton of bricks. I thought, Oh my gosh, I still, I feel I'm young. I still have so much that I want to accomplish and do and see and be like all these things come flooding in. And I'm like, she was so young. Mm -hmm. So that hit me. It was, it was hard. It was a hard day. It was a hard moment. And then, so not only that, I'm now in my second year of sales at CentOS, I'm trying to hit President's Club again, which anyone can tell you is so hard to do back to back. And nine months into that, so nine months later, so March of the following year, still 34, I was asked to then transition into a new role, a new position, a new territory, a new office with CentOS. And I thought, this is what I need because I could feel how stressed I was at trying to hit it again. And it was kind of that make or break moment where I was again, working on this really big deal. And had I landed that deal, I would, I probably would have hit again. But if I didn't land that deal, I was going to be way off. And in March of that year, they told us like, we're not ready to pull the trigger yet. And I mean, it was like a deflating moment. And within a couple of weeks, I, I was transitioning into my new role excited to leave the house for the morning and start this new day, this new role, this new position. And I, I was leaving and I, I got overwhelmingly dizzy and had to sit down. And then I started sweating profusely through my clothes. And I'm like, my husband, I was home by myself. And I was like, this, this doesn't feel right. I'm going to lay down and kind of hope that this is just an episode that goes away and I'll deal with it later. And it didn't. So I made a phone call to my aunt to tell her, I don't, I don't feel right. And she's like, you don't sound right. Something's, something's wrong with your voice. And I could tell as I was talking to her, it was harder to swallow. My voice was changing tone and I could feel my like throats just like swelling shut. But luckily I don't panic in that moment. Your body, your mind doesn't allow you to do that. So she was like, call 911 and I'll meet at the hospital. And long story short, I did got to the hospital within 15, 20 minutes my husband met me there, my dad, my aunt. And by the time I got there, I was spitting into a bucket. I, I couldn't swallow at all. And then I immediately pretty much black out, fade out. And probably two days after that, I kind of come to, to be honest with you, Margaret, Mar- it didn't, it didn't hit me even then to hear the word stroke, but I have had a stroke. And I think that the first doctor that came in maybe because of my age and I had no history of that was that the last thing on his mind. So he, he thought it was just vertigo and was going to walk out. And my family's like, this is not vertigo. Like, look at her eyes, look at the things are happening. This is not just an inner ear thing. So we didn't allow him to come back in. And hours later, the second neurologist did come in and, you know, advised that, I had clotted in three places and on my brain. Oh my gosh. 
it's a lot to to take in and thank goodness your family was there with you and like refusing to accept a misdiagnosis of vertigo when you had actually had a stroke so you know I know strokes kind of range on the spectrum of severity can you give us like an idea of like for you you know like I mean the recovery from a stroke can be quite severe and difficult and knowing you now I mean I don't think most people would even know that just looking at you and the way what you do and you're you know but the stroke happening is kind of just like the beginning of the journey. Oh yeah. I even tell people today and I'm four years out that I don't give it the credit it deserves for how Mm. severe it actually was. My family and friends do because they saw, you know, from such a different perspective than I did. Um, Mm. My brain didn't process any of this. I mean, Mm. for weeks, months, I would say like I had heard the word, but I, you know, my brain was not in that place to, hear it, accept it, be aware of it. I wasn't aware for a couple of weeks, at least that I couldn't walk. Um, so it had affected my balance and my ability to swallow. So I, I don't even think I was realizing like, I'm not eating or drinking anything right now. And if I do, I'm choking. I have to I do all these swallow tests. Didn't realize like they almost had to put it, they might've put a tube in actually. They may have done that for a day or two. And really not realizing until I got to acute rehab, I was in the hospital for a week and then moved to acute rehab for 10 days and processing my visual deficit that I now have. And that's something I adapt to every day. So in acute rehab, you know, it was all about like the intense therapy of, of learning how to walk and chew food and take medicines with applesauce and not even wrap my head around, honestly, the visual deficit until I got to outpatient um, therapy. And then having therapy around that, learning how to deal with 40% of my vision really not being available to me anymore. So yeah, speech therapy, going through the driving test, you know, to get my license back, thank goodness. Um, I went to a neuro-ophthalmologist and he was very borderline on giving me my license back. And there's just so many stroke survivors out there that lose that independence. And thankfully, I'm blessed that I was able to get mine back, but it's, you know, driving is... I will say a mentally draining activity for me these days. <laughs> so. Sure. Yeah. Cause I mean, so maybe if you will like help us understand, like you've lost 40% of your vision. Like how does that translate? Cause I would, I would imagine like having limited vision driving, driving's already stressful enough with full capacity. No but what's it like for you as no far doubt. as like what you can and can't see? I guess what I make sure I try and do at all times is take the least stressful way I can Mm. to my destination. So if I know there's a road where it's only two lane and I'm the only car in that lane, right. Or even if I'm in a four lane, I make sure I'm in the left lane. So I know that there's no cars on my, on the left side of me, or even when I'm interstate driving, (laughs) I'm in the fast lane because no one's on the left of me, which is not typically not a problem for me, but you know, like you said, it's still stressful on the road because there's still, you know, fools that'll drive. 80, 85, 90 past you in the middle lane. So it's just constantly being overly aware of my surroundings and just yeah. being as smart as I can on the ways I can take that I, I will, will not allow, will not cause me as much stress. Right. Right. Well, and you know, I think something we haven't touched on, but like you always stayed very like athletically inclined, even though you did, like, you kind of hung up your 
your tennis racket going to college, like you always still stayed extremely active. Like the athlete always stayed in you. So, and like, I mean, same thing here, like how has that impacted what you've been able to do just physically as an athlete? It well, it definitely played in my favor because I did, I was doing it like adult style, like boot camps, four to five days mm-hmm. a week before I would run, you know, 30 to 60 minutes a day and like really always cared about taking care of my body. So the competitive side in me, which can be a strength or weakness, but in this case, it definitely played to a strength, right? Because I was just making sure in rehab and therapy that I was just trying to do better than I did the day before. Give me a task and I want to do it again. And I'm going to make sure that I beat the time that I did the day before or do it better than I did the day before. So I'm thankful that that, that competitiveness has never left my side. Um, and, and like you said, the physical recovery for me, I was able to come back as best as I possibly could at almost full strength, even though my body doesn't allow me to do the boot camp anymore because of that paralyzed vocal cord. I don't know if I mentioned that already, but um, it affects my breathing. So I have to be able to still catch that deep breath. So it doesn't allow for me to, to run like I used to run or do those intense workouts like I did before. And it's, it's being okay with that now and finding a new way to, to get my workout in because not only working out for me was, you know, physical exercise, but for me, gosh, it was such a mental and emotional release. Uh-huh. So I have to have that. Oh my gosh. Well, and I think I remember you saying like Pilates has kind of become your, like, that's really kind of uh, replaced mm. your boot camps and running and has really been a great way to kind of scratch that outlet for you. 110% has it been a blessing in my life for, from the physicalness to like helping me with my balance. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, getting that mental, mental and emotional release and just the social aspect of being surrounded by so many other, you know, positive, empowering, uplifting women that just, you know, make me want to be better too. So, right. Yeah. So it's like the whole thing. It's not just the physical, but it's also the community element that comes with being part of it. Oh, that's amazing. It's, 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 it's key. Yeah. It's, it's, it's crucial. Okay. So, how give us an idea timeline wise. So, this happens. In, in March. Um, and this was, was this 2017? 17. Okay. So March, 2017. And then, so recovery, when, when do you go back to work? I went back too early. I will tell you now, but I went back, gosh, not even three months later as a very fragile being, I will say. And they were so kind with me and saying like, come back at your own pace. Don't come back at like 40 hours a week, come back, you know, half days, do what you can do, do what makes you feel comfortable. There's no pressure here from us at all. And I'm so thankful for, for this organization because I just connected with so many people since where that's not the case. And let alone, are they dealing with, you know, right. Their own physical and mental and emotional recovery of some, you know, a a life-changing experience that they've had they now don't have the support from, from who they thought maybe they would get the support from. Mm-hmm. And I did. So, and I, I just wanted that sense of normalcy. I was, I didn't mm-hmm. want to like have therapy and like lay in bed, like mm-hmm. that just that's not what I wanted to do. Right. So I, I went back very early and, um, at a different, you know, in a different position where I was just kind of helping everybody out and really became a mentor for others, which I was a mentor before all of it happened, but it would have, <laughs> 
I, I feel like I had a different perspective as being a mentor to other new reps that were coming in. And, and honestly, it was the most rewarding position to have like that year moving forward because people were reaching out to me to talk life. They weren't really talking like, Hey, what should I do with this account? I, how do I, how do I get around this buyer? What do I do? It was more like, I'm dealing with this. I'm dealing with that. I'm in a bad place. Um, I very much value that role that I had there when I came back. Yeah. Like because of your, it sounds like because of your experience that people were feeling more comfortable just being open and being like their whole self around you instead of just talking about work. We need more of that. And hopefully not, it wouldn't take somebody having uh, a major life changing event, like a stroke to allow for there to be a level of comfort there. Okay. So uh, something you said that I was curious about is like, you know, you, you mentioned going back early and like, you know, it sounds like that's hindsight of like, you probably went back too fast. What prompts you to say that? Like, you know, you were clearly the company wasn't pressuring you. It sounds like some of it was driven from like you being maybe a little stir crazy, like I need some normalcy in my life. But why, why do you, you know, looking back, say it's too fast? Great question. It was because I wanted to go back to the way things were. And I was an achiever and I was competitive and I wanted to go back to yeah, my, my, my same old routine as before and thinking I could do the same things just like I did them before at the same high level. That's what I thought I could do. When honestly, I can tell you just even within that first few weeks, I mean, going a half day or three quarters of a day, coming home and feeling so fatigued and having mm. like a massive headache and just needing to lay down, it's like, oh, oh, this is just the beginning here you oh. know, of, of accepting what's what's happening and what's going to happen moving forward. Right. I mean, I would just imagine that that was incredibly difficult too, because having been able, I would, I would guess just based off your background of like being somebody who could probably push through a lot and had a lot of energy and had a lot of stamina and, you know, could, could do quite a bit to all of a sudden now be, it sounds like pretty restricted. Like that would mentally be quite a hurdle to overcome. I will tell you like on my one year anniversary, I had an appointment with my neurologist as a follow-up and I didn't stop crying in her office the whole time. And she's like, as a, as a, you know, like any medical doctor would be like, what's wrong with you? but tell me why you're crying. What, what's going on? And I told her, well, you know, I, I'm still adapting to these deficits that I have that no one can see, you know, a lot of stroke survivors, warriors that, that we all are, they, they have these at one side, typically of your body is paralyzed. You know, you're not able to use one leg. You're not able to use one arm. You're just adapting to so much that people can physically see, which is hard in and of itself, but I have these deficits that no one could see. But not only that, I can tell you now, but the, the biggest reason I was crying then is we didn't have the answer to my stroke. We didn't know oh. why this happened to me. So I had no idea what it felt like to live with anxiety until it was in that moment where I was living in fear and would cry at the drop of a dime if I even remotely felt dizzy or if I remotely felt off balance for a moment sure. or I had this weird sensation 
pain in my head. And it's like, what is that? Is this going to happen again? Sure. Yeah. You went through a majorly traumatic event and those, those things of course would trigger all of those same emotions that, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I can't, you know, right. Like you hear that idea of like, you just never know what somebody's going through or dealing with. And I think to your point, like, you know, stroke warriors, right. That like they're, you just don't know. Cause on, again, on the outside, you look I don't like to use this term, but like you look normal, right? Like how would you possibly know that you are dealing with these, these deficits or even just like with what could be just crippling anxiety because you're still processing through this trauma that you've been through and you've, you've seen it, you've seen it unfold twice now in your lifetime. Right. And that I hadn't processed yet either. Like after that year Mm -hmm. mark, it hadn't hit me yet that we were the same age when we had Mm -hmm. our events. So I, I get to that within a few months later, I have that realization where that was just like full circle moment for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, so I think what's really interesting is like, okay, so you have, so you're dealing with all this anxiety, you're dealing with these changes. You're not able to do the things that you want to do, but wanting so badly to have them. So how, how does the healing process begin for you? Yeah. So I, my neurologist referred me before, before just handing me the drugs, you know, before handing Mm -hmm. me this, a medication that I was just not willing to to take yet. I tried therapy. So I went to two different therapists, um, a couple of sessions a piece. And it was, it was the same result every time. And it could have been different. I will tell you if I think I would have known the cause for my stroke and the anxiety and the fear, but I didn't. So Mm -hmm. it was like, I am already emotionally unstable. And then I'm going to sit in here with you for an hour and walk out completely emotionally drained. Like had to go to bed the rest of the day, like exhausted, tired, fatigued. And it wasn't anything, it wasn't anything that had to do with them specifically as therapists. It was just where I was and where I didn't want to be anymore and where I wanted to go, but I didn't know it, uh-huh. but it was just like, we're honing in so deep here. And it's like, I'm, I'm looking to not do that. Um, right. but I, I need to know how I need to know who to go to. I need to know where to go. Right. And that's when, um, I, my best friend referred me to a life coach where I got all the answers I was looking for. Yeah. So, so different, right? Cause not therapy, but a coach. So what, what made the experience with a coach different? I mean, our first meeting together as I was the emotional disaster in the back of the coffee shop. Um, I don't think she knew what she was getting herself into, but um, <laughs> she just helped define it for me as coaching mm. is meeting, meeting you where you are and help move you forward mm. versus therapy not that there's not a place works there always is, but it's still, you know, it's very past and problem focused and driven. And I was looking for solutions mm-hmm. and that, that just made complete sense to me. So we, we kind of, we started there. That's amazing. That's amazing. And it makes, I mean, right. I think to your point, it's knowing yourself and your wiring and what you wanted was to move forward. It wasn't about what had happened. It was great. I know, I know what has happened, but now I want, <laughs> I want to go forward. I want to look yeah. in the front, the front window shield and go forward. I don't want to be looking in the rear view mirror. Okay. Yes. So 
again, I think like a little bit of a fast forward to, I mean, you were at CentOS for a couple more years after this happened. And then you've kind of done something again, you've kind of made another bold, brave move again and launching into, yeah, now you are becoming a coach and you launched your own coaching company. That I have. And, you know, when I was working with my coach, she would tell me, Mm-hmm. you're going to be a coach one day. It's just a matter of, let me know when you're ready and I will help you get there, but you will be. It's just when you're ready. And at the time I thought, <laughs> there's no way. I don't, here I am, like can't even control my tears. And the, the bigger picture was, here's the key is by working with my coach, I understood that I was grieving the old me. Mm. So I had already grieved you know, the loss of the most important person in my life. And I had done so with my grandma, um, you know, a few years ago as well, which she was my next closest person in my life. And that was really hard. But then understanding I am processing the grief of the old version of me. And yeah, I had zero confidence in myself. I had zero belief in myself. I, she just helped me kind of redefine this, this purpose and understanding this happened for me and not to me. Mm. The purpose is my purpose is, you know, my mom didn't, she passed away at 34. She didn't make it. And, and I did, I, I have to now and want to honor her legacy and make her proud by serving others that are where I've been. Yeah. Gosh, that's so powerful of choosing the mindset of this happening for you and not to you. And 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 again, not while diminishing that process of grief, but you know, like letting yourself go through that experience and working through like losing the old version of you and kind of needing to reinvent yourself, even though that w- that wasn't your choice. But I think that's so. It's so powerful because mindset makes such a huge difference to how we view the world around us. It's everything. Mm-hmm. Is it not? I mean, it's everything. You can't always choose what happens in your life, but you can choose how you react to it. You can choose how you get up from it. And, right. and unfortunately, you know, as I, as I am defining my coaching business and connect with lots of stroke survivors, the ones that want to talk to me, there are, they're in a pretty good place, whether they're, you know, a couple years out, five years out, 10 years out, they seem to be in a similar position to myself where they've kind of accepted who they are now. And this is the new version of them. And they're going to make the best of it. Whereas mm-hmm. there's stroke survivors out there that just want to go back to the way things were. They just want to go back to who they were before and they're going to stay stuck. Right. That, that, that kind of makes a massive difference. So you, you know, originally when your coach told you, you were going to be a coach, you're like, <laughs> no, uh, what, what changed? Like, what, what was the catalyst that got you to say like, yes, I'm ready. It's time. And I want to do this. Aside from her constant support and motivation and belief in me that I could do it. It was really through the pandemic last year, like last March, April, when, you know, the world shut down and I couldn't get out into the community. Like I, I was doing for the home health company that I work for. 
I was able to start diving into these like online courses and classes and programs and just trying to do, I was dabbling, you know, and, mm-hmm. and hired a business coach to really kind of create a foundation of what this could look like. And the more, more programs and things I did and the more people I connected with and how these virtual calls with the more my mindset was, was shifting into, I can do this. I'm going to do this. People need this. People need to know that. I I feel like people, you know, when they hear my story that something will resonate with them and they, or they know someone that it will and think they can do this too. They can overcome the, the challenges and struggles that go on, you know, mentally and emotionally in their head. And there's, there's another side, there's the other side and it's better and it's more abundant and it's not only accepting it, but embracing who you now are and who you want to be. And that if, as long as you've got the right mindset, which takes a lot of work to get in that space but also the right support to help you get there and the want and willingness to, to do the work to get there. Right. Well, and I think it's so neat because I, as I've explored what you're, what you're doing with your coaching, I think what's really cool is that you've expanded, like you, you know, yes, you, you work with stroke warriors because of your unique experience. But I also think it's really neat because you, it's, it's not just about that. It's also about life-changing events and that it can come in a multitude of forms. And so will you just, you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, like kind of where you are focusing your coaching energy and kind of who are the people that you, you know, are aiming to serve with your, with your work? Yeah. You know, the women that have reached out to me thus far are actually women that just say, on the outside, everything looks good, right? I've got a marriage. I've got the kids. I have a good paying job. But man, something's missing. I just don't feel fulfilled. Something's not fueling my soul anymore. And I, I want that in my life. I want that for me. I want to get there. And I love that. And what I will say, I want to say what I, what I loved about Cintas was that they, they always honed in, even, you know, this massively huge organization, they honed in on the why why you do what you do. And always before this event happened to me, you know, I would sit in these rooms, sit in these meetings, and they occasionally would go around the room and they would talk about it. And I love that until this, this happened to me and working with a coach to help redefine what this is and why, and why I'm doing this, you know, it's, I'm here for a reason. I made it. I, you know, I'm going to do this to make my mom proud and and myself proud because I know I'm capable and I know what I've overcome. And you're right. Like it can play into such a variety of experiences that people have, but still feel like they can't dig themselves out of that hole. Right. Yeah. And like finding your purpose. You know, I mean, I just, I like the, yeah. the parallels are endless of understanding like what motivates me and what am I, what do I see as my purpose in life and what I'm meant to do and how do I grieve what I once had? And, and even just the, like what's going on in the inside that nobody knows that, and you know, that that's not obvious on the outside. And so I think that's, that's so neat that you're able to take this, this experience and even 
now answer the question of like, what is my why? What's my driver? Um, And now you have that answer. As a coach, it's, it's not my job to be able to tell you what your why is. It it all comes from within. It all comes internally. And it's just my goal to provide you certain tools and resources and empower you to find those answers on your own and to do the work yourself to really come to that, you know, to have those transformational moments and realizations like your aha moments, like, yes, this is it. This feels right. This makes sense. This, this is it for me. So that, that is my role as a coach to help you find those for yourself, but all the work is done internally. It's, 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 it's never externally. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And I, I do. I think that's, I think that's what's so fun about great coaches is that, that idea of like, they're just there to unlock you. They don't, they, yeah. they're not going to have your answers, but they sure are really good at extracting them from you. <laughs> yes. yes. I love that. <laughs> well, um, gosh, I mean, time, time has flown and we're kind of coming here to an end. And one of my favorite things to ask is to just, you know, through, you know, in your case, normally I ask career wise, but I think I'm going to just say life for you is either through your experiences, something that you've learned, or um, it could be advice that somebody has given you that's just been incredibly powerful and helpful to you. There was just one thing that people walked away with today that you wanted them to have. What would, what would that be? I know everything happens for a reason. And that has taken me four years to like wrap my head around and understand. But once you know what that reason is for you, whether you're not going to know it at the time, but everything is here to teach you something. And those learning lessons will take you to the next level if you're willing to, to listen and willing to hear them and willing to feel them and talk through them and embrace them. Life, life is, is your best teacher. If you're, you just got to be open to wanting to, to learn about that and be excited about it and reaching out for just asking for the help and not being ashamed of doing so feeling comfortable enough to be like, I need, I'm I'm stuck. I need to get out of feeling this way. And you may have the best support system in the world. I, I, I have the most loving husband and best family and friends and it rivals anybody's on the planet. But there was a certain point where they could only do so much for me. And so it was up to me to then say, I'm going to, I'm going to put my hand out there and, and ask for help from someone who has this, you know, non-biased, non-judgmental opinion of me and only want to help me navigate these choppy waters and get to the other side. So I guess that's, that's what I've learned through all this is being comfortable enough to ask for the help and want it. The want is so much bigger than the need. Like you've got to want to do it. You've got to want to make the choice. You've got to want to change. You've got to be willing to take that leap. And if it's not what you want, Hey, you learn from it and you move on. Well, I think that last little bit there is so powerful too, because you can have an incredible support network community, but at the end of the day, like the change starts with you and no matter how great they are, it doesn't like that, that won't mean anything if, if you yourself aren't able to like be an advocate for yourself. 
And that goes for anybody going through anything, right? Like if you're an alcoholic, if you do drugs, if you're in an abusive relationship, people can tell you all day, hey, you need to do something about this. You need to, you got to change. You need to get out. You need to stop. But until you, yeah, you're your own advocate, nothing's going to happen. Yeah. Nothing. Uh, Nothing, right? (laughs) Yeah, nothing, no no change will happen. So, oh, well, Jennifer, this has just been, I'm so grateful for you sharing your story for being the woman that you are that has taken just incredibly intense and sometimes traumatic experiences and turning them into fuel and turning them into something really positive. I just, it's so remarkable. And I just appreciate so much you sharing your experience and your story and the emotions that came behind all of it. It's just, it's incredibly powerful. I'm so grateful to have you on. Oh, I'm so honored to to speak with you today and to have met you a few months ago. And I appreciate you allowing me to share my story in hopes that someone hears it and is ready to, to, to make that change. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. Oh man. Every time I hear Jennifer talk about her story, I am just in awe of her strength and her resiliency. And I love to see how she has channeled this major experience and being a stroke warrior into something so powerful as being a coach for others. If you want to connect with Jennifer and learn more about her coaching, you can go to justcommitcoaching.com. We've linked it for you in the episode notes. Or feel free to just connect with her on LinkedIn. Her profile is linked there as well. We have a lot of exciting things happening this week with Rising Tide. We're officially launching our website. So stay tuned for that on Friday. If you don't already, we'll be making a ton of announcements on Instagram. So follow along with us there at Rising Tide Podcast. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode or others, would love it if you leave us a quick review and a few notes about why you love listening to Rising Tide. Thanks so much for being here and I'll see you next week.